0: Well, good morning. morning. Uh, My name is Hunter Hughes, and I am really glad uh, to be with you this morning and to be around God's Word together. My wife and I, Christina, we've been members of Covenant Life Church for about four years now, and we truly love being part of this family. It's so good to look out and see all of you, our family that we love. Um, One of the ways that I get to serve at Covenant Life is with our middle and high school students, And so, if you are a middle or high schooler between 6th grade and 12th grade, or if you know one, and you're wondering, is there a place for them at Covenant Life? And there is, and I would love to talk with you more about that. So, shameless plug there. Come and find me after the service. Uh, Well, I have so enjoyed uh, studying the truths in our passage, the one that you just heard read this morning. So, I'm eager to get going and enjoy them with you all. Uh, When we have the chance, my wife and I love going to see live music. And a couple weeks ago, we got the chance to see a concert. And at that concert, one of the artists, whose name was Andy Golahorn, was singing a song that we both really enjoyed. And it had an interesting final verse, or a final uh, refrain at the end of each verse. And it went something like this. There are some weird people out there. So he starts off the song with some light-hearted observations. They say there's more than one way to skin a cat. Who in the world discovered that? There are some weird people out there. Uh, my wife has been gluten-free for a long time now. She can look straight at a donut and turn it down. Uh, there are some weird people out there. And then he sings this. I once heard this story of a dad who lost his little girl, how he forgave and still visits her murderer. All because he follows a guy who did backwards things, like touching the sick, like loving enemies. There are some weird people. I don't know about you, but that last verse uh, caught me off guard. Uh, But it made me think, Wow! There really is a a type of strangeness that we sometimes see in the world that is beautiful and absolutely refreshing. And as I've reflected on this over the last couple of weeks, uh, I have asked the question of myself, and I've asked it about our church: What would motivate us, Covenant Life Church, to live as a strange, but beautiful and refreshing community in this world? Well, I believe our passage today uh, directs us toward that answer because in it we're going to see that we are a people that possesses a profound peace. Peace with God and peace with one another. And we don't usually think about it this way, uh, but I want us to see that the peace we have is a peace that moves us. And when we realize, when we know how great this peace is that is ours, we will be compelled by it. We live in a world of division and hostility, and Paul writes in Romans three, that the way of peace they have not known, and but for the grace of God, we would not know it either. But we do know it, and that is because we know the one whose name is Prince of Peace. This Advent, we've been preparing our hearts to celebrate the birth of Christ by looking at the four names given in Isaiah 9, 6, to the one who would come and rescue the world. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. With the giving of each name, Isaiah is placing log after log on the fire of our excitement and our anticipation, causing the flames of our excitement to rise higher and higher for this child who would come. And today we have come to the final name Prince of Peace. And uh, this title, Prince of Peace, uh, we have to admit it sounds really nice, the alliteration Prince of Peace. Um, But this Prince of Peace is not a cozy, uh, Christmassy name given to a little prince of a child who would come and rescue us. It's not a peace that pairs nicely with your cocoa and your fuzzy socks. Uh, This Prince of Peace has come to give his people real never-ending and compelling peace. So, let's listen today and see once again how this child who came is exactly who we need and let's discover together how this peace compels us to live as a peculiar people in a world of hostility. So, let's pray. Our Father... In heaven. Hallowed be your name. We praise you this morning because you did not spare your own son but gave him up for us all. And you did this to restore the peace that was lost. And we thank you for your mercy and your grace. And we pray that you would help us now to know this peace that surpasses understanding. And we pray that as we know this peace, that you would change us by it in any way that you wish. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So our passage today was written by the Apostle Paul to Christians living in and around the Greek city of Ephesus, and this Christian com- community would have been comprised both of Jewish converts and Gentile or non-Jewish converts to Christianity, and that's going to be important for us to note. If you read through the short letter, six chapters, you'll see that Paul spends the first three chapters reminding these believers of vital truths about their identity as Christians. This is who you are, that's what Paul is saying. This is who you are, and then in chapter 4, verse 1, he's going to transition And chapter four begins like this, he says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So in our passage, Paul is reminding his audience of three key things, but these three truths were not just to add to the things that they know, they were truths that Paul was giving to this audience so that it would change their lives And so that these Ephesian believers would live as a peculiar and beautiful community in the world. And these three reminders are for us as well and will be our three key points. Three truths that support and sustain our mission as a church. So we need to remember these three things. First, remember how far off we were. We need to remember how far off we were. Two, we need to remember that Christ did exactly what was needed to bring us near. Christ did exactly what was needed to bring us near. And third, we need to remember how profound our peace is. We need to remember how profound our peace is. So we are going to jump into the first point, and if you're not there already, you can turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, and uh, this is going to be out of the ESV, the English Standard Version, which you can find in the back of your pew, and this passage begins on page 917. Okay, so point one, we need to remember how far off we were. So our passage begins with an important word. Therefore, and this word is going to point us to what came just before. And in our case, Paul has just said to this church full of Christians, both Jew and Gentile Christians, he said in Ephesians chapter two, verse one, and you, all of you, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Sin, is a disposition of hostility in the human heart toward God that leads us to distrust him and disobey him. And Paul uses this word dead, says we were dead in our trespasses and sins to emphasize the tragic reality that people were completely incapable of fixing this posture of hostility in their heart. And so starting with the first humans and continuing to us today, we have all lived in this world as enemies of God, deliberately disobeying his loving and perfect commands. But Paul doesn't stop there. That's just the first verse. He goes on and in verse four he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so, though these Christians were at one time hostile toward God and dead in their sins, God did what was necessary to give them life and restore the peace that was lost. Peace. When we talk about peace in the Bible, uh, we're referring to a, a Hebrew word that you might probably have heard before, shalom. So we need to unpack this because it does differ from the way we often use the word peace. Uh, we use the p- word peace most often to refer to the absence of something. So we think of peace as the absence of conflict or the absence of war. Uh, But shalom means more than that. It also means the presence of something. So it's not just the absence of war, but it would be the presence of perfect love. It's not just the absence of noise, but it's the presence of harmony. Shalom is perfection. It's wholeness. And shalom is the good, abundant life And it is life with God. That's at its center. Life with God in an intimate, unbroken relationship. But the shalom was lost when man forfeited this relationship of life and chose instead hostility with God. This choice led to death and brokenness in the world and especially brokenness in our relationships with other people. A couple of days ago, I was eating lunch with my parents out in our backyard, and we have this great big oak tree above the table, and at one point, uh, this little oak leaf fell and landed on our table, and my dad picked it up in the middle of conversation, and it was mostly green, Um, but though it still looked like it had some life in it, uh, we knew that just in a matter of time, it would turn uh, brown, crunchy, and it would die. And the reason for that is that it had detached from the tree, detached from its source of life. And our fall from shalom, our fall from peace with God, brought us to the same end, death. But God made us alive with Christ. So now, this is what Paul has just said to these Ephesian Christians, all of them, Jew, Gentile, And then when we come to verse 11, the audience changes a little bit or he focuses on a group of people. He focuses now on the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And we read in verse 11, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Interesting. Uh, Interesting title to give somebody, the uncircumcision. Uh, But this would have been a very intentional and a demeaning title given to a Gentile by a Jew. And essentially, what they are saying by calling Gentiles the uncircumcision is this You are people that just don't belong. You don't belong with us, and you don't belong with God. Circumcision was very important to the Jews because it was given by God as the physical sign that they were his set-apart people. In Genesis, God made a covenant with Abraham and his family, the Jews, saying, I will be God to you and your family and you will be my people and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And this is the sign that you are the people who belong to me. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 14, God says that any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So Paul is speaking directly to these non-Jewish people who they are told don't really belong to God or his people. But these Gentiles, they're Christians. So Paul is going to repeat what he said before, but he's going to focus it at the Gentiles, and he's saying, listen, I I know you were called at one time the the uncircumcision, and you really were cut off. You really were far from God. But listen again, because I'm going to tell you how it is that you have been brought near, and I'm going to tell you how close you really have come. But Paul doesn't begin his address to the Gentiles by saying, oh, just forget about the past, forget about all that. He actually starts with the opposite. He says, remember, remember the past, remember that you really didn't belong. And in verse 12, Paul highlights three specific aspects of their far-off condition. Three aspects of the Gentiles' far off condition. First, he says they were separated from Christ. When man first rebelled against God, all mankind immediately experienced separation from God. But God didn't abandon his people, instead, he gave them a promise. He gave them the promise of a Savior. He said, A seed, the offspring of a woman, is going to come. And he would crush the head of the serpent, the serpent that brought in the hostility. And in crushing the head of the serpent, this Savior would kill the hostility. This promise of a Savior was cherished by God's people for ages. And in fact, God continued over and over and in different ways, He continued to remind His people that He would send Christ, the Messiah the savior king, he would send this one, he would rescue his people, restore peace, and he would reign in a peace that never ends. And this promise of the Christ would have given Jews hope for ages. But the Gentiles, they knew nothing of this promise. They, like the Jews, were separated from God because of their sin, But they knew no promise about a coming savior, so they were separated from Christ. The second aspect of the Gentiles far off condition is that they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Remember that God had promised Abraham and his family, the nation of Israel, Israel, that he would be God to them and they would experience the blessing of life with God. God spoke to this people through the prophets. He brought this people into a good land, out of the land of Egypt. He defeated their mighty enemies, and he blessed them in many other ways. But the Gentiles, they were not part of this people. They did not know the goodness of living under God's care and his good rule. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Third, these Gentile Christians were strangers to the covenants of promise. God didn't just make one covenant, one promise to Abraham. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll see uh, many promises, sure, trustworthy promises that God gave to the Jews that would have given them hope, would have given them light in a very dark time. But the Gentiles, they knew nothing of these promises. There was no light brightening their darkness. They were separated from God and from his people. They were the uncircumcision, and just like God told Abraham, the uncircumcised were cut off. at the end of verse 12, Paul summarizes the Gentiles' tragic condition. He says, you had no hope and were without God in the world. No hope and without God. So this address to the Gentiles begins here. Remember that you were far off, far from God and without hope. And Friends, this, this was our story too. Maybe it's hard for you to remember the days when you were without God in the world, or maybe you remember them all too clearly. But the truth is that all of us were separated from God with seemingly no hope of coming near. So let me ask you this. What danger is there in forgetting that we, Christians, were once far off? What danger is there in forgetting that we were once far off? Sometimes I have to admit that I act like one who has always been near to God, like I've always been good with him, and I forget that it truly was his rich mercy that brought me near. I act like the unforgiving servant who was pardoned so much, but demanded the little that another owed him. So I wonder, Christian, are you in danger of forgetting that you were once far off? Advent, the season we're in right now is a unique time where we do remember that we were once far off and seemingly without hope. And this remembrance does prepare our hearts to rejoice in the good news of great joy that is for all the people. For unto us was born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, I, I know there are non-Christians here today And I thank God for that, and I've prayed for you this week. Um, But I don't want you to be misled here. Um, Paul is speaking to Christians and asking them to remember something about their past condition. Something that's no longer true of them. Um, But if you have not turned from your sin and from your hostility toward God and trusted in the work of Christ then you're not called to remember something about your past. I I want you to know that that this is your present reality. You are in the world without God. You have hostility still in your heart toward God, but it does not have to remain that way because one has already done exactly what was needed to kill the hostility and to bring you back to God. God. So if you are a Christian, or if today you turn from your sins and you trust in Christ, then you must know that you who once were far off have been brought near. So we come to point two. Remember that Christ did exactly what was needed to bring us near, exactly what was needed. Beginning in verse 13. But now, in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Praise God. He has not left us this day without a redeemer. Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, did exactly what was needed to bring us near and to restore shalom, restore wholeness. He provided the perfect and the only solution to our separation. And in these verses, Paul explains How Christ killed the hostility and reconciled us to God and to one another. As we've learned, uh, God required Jewish men to be circumcised, and that would be their physical reminder that they were people with him. They were his set-apart people. But God also gave his people a physical reminder of his presence with them. He reminded his people that he was God in their midst by giving them the temple. And though this this beautiful, ornate building was a reminder that God was with his people, if you were to ask a Jew, they would know that the temple also would have reminded them that there still was separation between them and God because not any common Jew could enter into the very presence of God in the center of the temple In Israel, there was only one way and one time when one man could enter into the center of the temple, into the presence of God. The one man was the high priest, the one way was by the shedding of animal blood, and the one time was on the day of atonement, a special day when the priest would enter into the presence of God. And when the high priest entered into the presence of God, he did this as a mediator. He was representing all of Israel to God in himself. But in order for him to enter, he had to offer sacrifices continually, both for his own sins and for the sins of the people. So look for a moment at Ephesians 2, verse 15. It's actually the verse that kind of confused me most, so I want to spend a little bit of time here. So Paul says that Christ Jesus abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And maybe you're like me, and you think, wait a minute, didn't Jesus say somewhere, don't think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets? Yes, he did. And that's in Matthew 5:17. and after he says that, he says... I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So even though it sounds maybe like opposites to you, Paul and Jesus are getting at the same point. Uh, Neither of them are saying that Jesus has come to do away with God's good moral laws. Uh, In fact, in Matthew five and six and seven, he's actually commanding radical obedience, a radical morality. Uh, of his followers, but in fact, what they're saying is that Jesus did away with these ceremonial laws, uh, laws like sacrifices and laws like the great the high priesthood. And the reason for that is because these things were just placeholders for Christ. So after Christ came, Jesus came, there was no need for them anymore, so they were abolished. Paul says in Colossians three seventeen, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And it's when we begin to understand how Jesus is the true and final sacrifice and the true and final high priest that we will start to see how Christ did exactly what was needed to bring us near. So first... He, Jesus, was the true and final sacrifice because he shed his precious blood on the cross. In verse 13, our passage says, he brought us near by his blood. And then in verse 16, he reconciled us to God through the cross. Christ provided the once for all sacrifice covering the sins of his people when he offered up himself. And like John, in the the Gospel of John, John the Baptist says to his followers, when Jesus passes by, he says, behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so Paul is saying to these Gentiles, look, the Lamb of God who takes away our sins so that we could come near. So in second, Paul says he created in himself, one new man in place of the two. Jesus is the one man who is able to enter into the presence of God. The people of Israel were symbolically united to the priest when he would enter on the Day of Atonement. But this is next level here. He's, Paul says, We are created in Christ Jesus as one new man. Here, In our great high priest, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Do you remember the serpent, the hostility-loving serpent who brought in, who tempted the humans to break the shalom Well, the serpent could almost taste victory when Jesus, the supposed Christ, the Savior of the world, hung limp on the cross, dead. And for three days, while Jesus lay still in the tomb, the serpent thought he had achieved victory, but he was just nibbling on his heel. The serpent was just biting Jesus' heel, because on the third day, Jesus Christ rose from the dead and crushed the head of the serpent. He killed the hostility that separated us from one another and killed the hostility that separated man from God. His resurrection proves to us that Jesus' perfect sacrifice was accepted. He exhausted all the righteous wrath that was stored up for us. Christ came and brought us near to God in himself. As the great high priest, and we can't miss this, Paul doesn't just say, Christ brought us peace. He says in verse 14, For he himself is our peace. And in order for Christ's perfect righteousness to be credited to you, and in order for his sacrificial death to cover you, and in order for his resurrection to give you confidence that death and separation from God will not be the last word for you, in order for all of this to be true, you must be in Christ. In Christ. These are, I believe, two most helpful words to understand what it really means to be a Christian. We are people in Christ, united to him by faith. And if you are not in Christ, if you have not placed your faith in him today, I urge you not to wait to turn from your sins and trust in his finished work. Because if you go to your grave apart from Christ, you will be apart from him forever and you will never have peace. But if today he becomes your peace, then you will have it and you will have him forever. The one who is the source of shalom and the source of abundant life. Christ has killed the hostility you do not have to be at odds with God. Christ did exactly what was needed and he offers his work to you freely. His invitation to you and his reminder to all of us is come, come to me and I will give you peace. I will take you all the way in, all the way into to the middle of the temple, back to the very presence of God. And this peace that Christ alone can offer is truly astounding. So this leads us to our third point. We need to remember how profound our peace is. Paul says to these Gentiles, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are, and then he gives three metaphors, to explain this profound piece. First, we are fellow citizens with the saints. Fellow citizens with the saints. We, Jew and Gentile, are people from the same country. We are living under the same king. We are united under the lordship of Jesus. But, that the citizen's analogy doesn't quite do it for Paul, so he moves on and he says, actually, we're members of the household of God. We are part of the same family. We share such a tight bond because God is our Father. He doesn't just rule over us from a distance, but he loves us and he is near to us. But even that isn't quite enough for Paul. So he goes on. And third, he says, this is beginning in verse 20. He says, we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And this is an awesome thought. So if an Ephesian Gentile Christian were to travel the 600 miles or so between Ephesus and Jerusalem with the hopes of going to the temple that stood in the center of Jerusalem, uh, they might have been surprised to find that they could not get very close at all to the temple building itself. And that's because surrounding the temple were several walled courtyards And the courtyard that was the furthest away from the temple was for the Gentiles. Beyond that, a little bit, was for the Jews. So if the Gentile made it to that outermost courtyard, what he would have seen on the wall that divided this courtyard from the one which the Jews were able to enter was a repeated inscription on that wall that would have said, in essence, Gentile, do not... Enter, or else you will die. The uncircumcised Gentile was cut off, both from his people and from God. But, oh, the good news about Jesus is so good because it takes these people that were once far off, and it says, no, no, come. Come into the courtyard with the people of God. You belong here. But it doesn't stop there. The good news of Jesus is peace, is that you can come into the courtyard where the priests dwell, where they get a front row seat to the work of God and his beauty. But as we've just heard, it doesn't stop there either. The gospel of peace says, oh, come on in. Come into the very center of the temple. This is where you belong. If you are united with Christ, you belong in the presence of God and you have that access That's pretty amazing, a Gentile who is far off, getting to come into the presence of God. But even that is not quite what Paul is getting at. What he wants these Gentiles to to consider is something that even the Jewish high priests of old would not have been able to fathom. He wants them to know that this peace that Christ has accomplished was so great that in fact, they have not just come into the temple, but they have become part of the temple. And church, this is true of us. We have become parts of the temple of the living God. We are built together on the word of God given as Paul says, by the apostles and prophets, and Christ Jesus himself is our cornerstone. He holds us all up on his shoulder, and it is only in him that we can remain together, and it is only on him that we can stay standing. Christian, we were once far off, but now we are citizens together, with all the saints, we are siblings together as members of God's family, and we are stones together in the temple of God. This is a profound peace. In the book titled Union with Christ, Rankin Wilborn explains that our union with Christ is both the anchor and the engine for the Christian. It is the anchor and the engine for the Christian. How is it the anchor? Well, it's because if we are in Christ, he was, is, and will forever be our peace. He is sure and steady, and our peace with God is secure in him because his work is finished. And our union with Christ is our engine because Christ dwells in us, the church, his body. And Paul will go on to say that God is a power at work within us, and he moves the members of his body. And so our peace with God in Christ gives us security. Our union with Christ is our anchor, and our peace with God in Christ is our engine that compels us to live as a peculiar people in this world. So here are three things that we who now know this piece are compelled to do. Ways that we are compelled to walk out what is true of us in the world. And uh, these might sound pretty familiar to you. Three ways we are to walk this out in the world. First, because we have access to God, let us delight in God. Christmas is close, if you didn't know, and I pray that our celebration of the birth of Christ is amplified and enriched in every way as we consider that it is only because he came that we in turn can come to him Christ and Christ alone gives us access to God and that is great news so Saturday celebrate deeply the reality that Christ has come to give us peace with God and I do I need to add this here and I will say that I don't I don't necessarily know who you are but you have been on my heart uh, over the last couple of weeks. And who I'm thinking of is this. Um, I'm thinking of the one who, for the coming Christmas celebration, or maybe it's the year to come, or maybe as far into the future as you can, you can imagine, uh, it feels hard to celebrate um, because you have separation. You've lost somebody that was close to you, somebody that you love. And in the midst of your grief, um, I'd I know God wants you to know uh, this week and forever that he has done, done amazing things to bring you close to him so that you could access him in your grief. He is your comforter. So whether you are bouncing off the walls with, with excitement for Christmas or whether it's a somber time for you. Don't forget to access God. Second, okay, we are compelled by peace because we are citizens of the same country, we are siblings of the same family, and we are stones in the temple. And because this is true of us, let us live together in gospel-centered community, which is the second piece of our, our mission statement as a church. Let us live together in gospel-centered community. So it is is hard to read through scripture and especially to read through this book of Ephesians and not see that God cares deeply about restoring peace among people. And he does this like we've read. He does this in the cross. He has brought all Christians to God in one body. So if we are in Christ, we are together together. Christ shed his blood so that we might know shalom, harmony with one another, with God and with one another. So let us continue to pursue peace and deep fellowship with one another. I just have to add, this is a way that many are encouraged by you all, by your pursuit of peace with one another. So let's keep going and pursue it even more. And when we pursue peace and as we live as a people of peace, we will stick out in the world, in the midst of this world that doesn't have peace. And lastly, if you're tracking with me, you might have skipped ahead. Because we are those who once were far off but have been brought near, let us work for gospel renewal in Tampa Bay and the nations. Let us preach peace to those who are near and those who are far. Last week I was enjoying our, one of our final songs, Go Tell It on the Mountain. And as we were singing about proclaiming this gospel over the hills and everywhere, multiple times as we were singing, the thought just kept coming to mind, Hunter, don't forget to proclaim it across the street. Our passage Emphasizes that the gospel of peace is for the near and for the far. It is for the Jew and the Gentile, for the religious and the unreligious. It is for the moral and the immoral, for our family and for strangers. It is for the interested and the opposed. It is for our neighbors and the nations. So as we go near and far, don't forget your union with Christ. In Matthew 28, Christ tells his disciples, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Today, peace is hard to come by, but we are a people who have peace restored by Christ's death and resurrection there is no more hostility with God and no more hostility with one another. This is true now, but it will only get truer. In Isaiah 9:7, following our focused passage for Advent, Isaiah says, "Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end." on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Church, this one that Isaiah spoke about, he has come. He has done exactly what was needed to give us peace. And today, he is exactly who we need And if we are in him today, then on that final day when Christ will return to judge the living and the dead, he and he alone will be exactly and only who we need, our Prince of Peace. Let's pray.